People say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons, a number nine coal And the straw boss said, well, to bless my soul You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain Fighting and trouble are my middle name I was raised in the cane break by an old mama line Can't no high-toned woman make me walk the line You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store If you see me coming, better step aside A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died One fist of iron, the other of steel If the right one don't get you, then the left one will You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I So to the company store. And welcome to the weekly review with Roman. Today it's Friday, April 26th, 2019. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio in the Mission District in San Francisco. We are on Ohlone Land. And I suggest that folks check out the Shumi Land Tax, and that's S-H-U-U-M-I, Land Tax, and you can Google that and get to the page. And if you live in the East Bay, you can pay a tax that goes back to indigenous folks who were here first. And you can also donate uh, regardless of where you live. So I want to promote that first and foremost on the show and recognize where we are. <sighs> okay. There's a lot to get to on the show today, and perhaps that's why I started with only one song instead of two or three, as I often do. Also got here early enough, so I was able to prepare a little bit more, which is what I like to do. There's a lot to get to today. Later on on the show, we'll we'll be playing a talk given by Fred Glass, who's a teacher at City College of San Francisco, on the origins of May Day. May Day is coming up, and growing up, I didn't I knew a little bit about it, but not a lot, and so I was really grateful to learn more about the origins of it and just it it's international workers day and there's i'll i'll play the i'll play the talk because that gets to a lot of information that's really important and a lot of things that were not taught in in schools uh or necessarily celebrated a lot growing up so 
looking forward to sharing that with folks. And the talk was given at the Tenderloin Museum, which is over on Eddy Street in the Tenderloin. And the introduction also will share some upcoming events at the museum as well. I have a few other audio clips I'll be playing today as well. Uh, I like to feature as many voices on the program as possible to share as much information as possible. And there's a lot to get to in in two hours. And I recognize that with only one week, uh, a lot can happen in a week. And especially in the recent few years, it just seems like there's been so much. And part of it, I think, is due to the access of information. And it's so so many people have access to sharing information and gaining information. And technology oftentimes moves faster than we do. And there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot to get to. And previously on the show, I've shared other talks, so I haven't quite gotten to the news, and or I have to some extent. And also, there's always one can never quite get to everything because there's always so much happening in so many places. And I did want to read a few news stories today because I just didn't feel quite depressed enough as is. That's not true. Uh, I I do feel once. Uh, uh, recognizing what's happening, we can accept it and learn how to how to solve it instead of pretending it's not happening because that doesn't do any good. Whew. I have a few on deck here. I haven't quite figured out the the batting order <laughs> just yet. Oh, as, oh goodness. Okay, I'm sighing and I haven't even started reading the articles yet. But there's also some positive things that are happening too. People organizing, which is really good and a a positive thing to share. And people, a lot of students and younger folks who are really uh, showing up and letting their voices be heard. And that's very heartwarming, among other things. I suppose I will start uh, locally. And there's an article from The Examiner. I've been following also the Coalition on Homelessness, who do a lot of work. So there's been talks of building navigation centers, uh, more navigation centers in the city. And there are some folks who are actually against it. That's right. There are folks who are so... I'm going to get so angry if I even begin to talk about it, but that's what's going to happen. And I'm also going to silence my cell phone as if I were doing a show or seeing a show or something along those lines. Um, okay, great. So the examiner, they have a, an article that came out a couple days ago, uh, controversial. And it's the, fu- it's like so funny that it's the idea of it is controversial that giving someone shelter, people who need shelter when there are thousands of people who need shelter, that somehow that idea is controversial, controversial. I think that should be in quotation marks personally, navigation center on the Embarcadero approved to house homeless. Amid unrelenting opposition from nearby residents, the San Francisco Port Commission Tuesday unanimously approved plans for a navigation center. And this article came out on April 23rd and was written by Laura Waxman. I'll I'll start reading it. Not sure how much of it I will read because I do want to get to a lot of things today. And I also highly recommend supporting the Coalition on Homelessness. Um, uh, Pick up a street sheet from folks uh, selling street sheets on the street. Um, they're just a, a good organization to help out, and they also just advocate for what folks need. And just, uh, also, if you follow them on, on Twitter as well, just to get more accurate information. Uh, amid unrelenting opposition from nearby residents, the San Francisco Port Commission Tuesday unanimously approved plans for a navigation center that will eventually bring 200 beds for homeless people to the Embarcadero. The highly anticipated vote came after weeks of community meetings that drew heated crowds and laid bare mixed feelings over how San Francisco plans to address more than 7,500 people counted as homeless on any given night. I think it's so terrific that you are so concerned about the homeless, but I wish you were concerned. Oh, uh, oh, goodness. 
Okay, I'm not even going to finish reading the quote by someone who is kind of opposed to the uh, the shelter because I don't want to waste my time on that. How does that sound? One benefit to doing one's own show is I can choose what I want to read and what I don't want to read, and I don't need to read other folks who are uh, afraid of poor people. We don't need to hear any more of their rhetoric. Um, doing nothing is not really an option, said Patricia Stone, who lives two blocks away from the site. Um it might be slightly too big. It might have other constraints to it, but I think it's important for us to take ownership in moving the homeless in this neighborhood. I think there are a lot of them here off the streets. Uh, commissioners weighed hours of testimony from supporters and advocates against concerns from residents and business owners in the area that have organized in opposition since the center was first proposed by Mayor London Breed in March. I believe that we should do it without delay, said Commissioner Victor Macris. I think simultaneously we can work on improving the management and oversight. I believe that we should identify alternative sites for homeless shelters so that when we find a permanent use for the site, we can relocate it. All right. And yeah, so I feel like that's somewhat of a... I mean, the fact that there even has to be a hearing on it is just really... And perhaps I'm a bit distressed because I was following a lot of the the, the back and forth on on Twitter of the folks who were just saying, all of, just they're so. It's so blatantly classist, and so lacking any kind of empathy and also just accurate information. It's so misguided that the folks who were opposing the shelter, and. Clearly, doing nothing is going to make things worse. And also, why why would you be against... I'm just... Maybe I'm out of words because I don't understand how someone can be so um, unaware of the struggles that people go through and unwilling to listen to them. To, to I mean, people who are advocating for themselves to not even listen to them. <sighs> yeah. This is a, one of the happier stories I was planning on reading. I don't know why I'm feeling sad right now. It's just uh, recognizing that this is a conversation that has been happening here in San Francisco, which has this reputation of being a very progressive city, yet there are many folks who live here who are who have been pushing it in the, in the opposite direction. Um, so yeah, if you like to read the article, there's more information there. I'm probably going to stop right there also i'm just i don't know if you're not already angry enough that there are people out there who do not want folks to have shelter they had raised money um <laughs> they had raised money to prevent the shelter from being built that's where they put their money instead of actually putting it towards housing it's it's so it's just disturbing um Further down in the article, a survey conducted by HSH identified 179 people living unsheltered within an outreach zone proposed for the center, roughly spanning an area encompassed by the Embarcadero, Market, and Fourth Streets. Supporters of the center argue that San Francisco's homeless population deserves additional services and that the Navigation Center is a modest and humane step towards solving the city's homelessness crisis. Jennifer Friedenbach, who has been a guest on the show before, and I recommend checking out, um, I believe Jennifer was here back in 2000, 
2014, I think, or 2015, uh, Jennifer Friedenbach, director of the Coalition on Homelessness, urged the commission to stand up to hate and called out rhetoric by opponents that she perceived as class bias that has turned into class hatred in this debate. Assuming your child or pet are unsafe merely because they are near a group of poor people is the very definition of class hatred, said Friedenbach. It's inhumane, immoral, not just entitled, it's spiteful and selfish. When my kids see homeless people, they they ask me how we can help them. Another woman who advocated for the center said that the city is not a gated community. In San Francisco, we don't get to choose our neighbors, the woman said. So if you'd like to read more, check out the article that happened that happened that was published in the examiner also available online <sighs> okay initially i was going to start with this story and i probably should have just gotten it out of the way it's on earth day which happened on april earth day is april 22nd on earth day remembering the u.s military's toxic legacy on earth day mint press brings you a piece originally published last may on the u.s department of defense's toxic legacy throughout the world the department of defense produces more hazardous waste than the five largest U.S. chemical companies combined. And this was published in mintpressnews.com and was written by Whitney Webb, and it came out on April 22nd. Media outlets gave minimal attention to recent news that the U.S. Naval Station in Virginia Beach spilled an estimated 94,000 gallons of jet fuel into a nearby waterway less than a mile from the Atlantic Ocean. While the incident was by no means as catastrophic as some other pipeline spills, it underscores an important yet little-known fact, that the U.S. Department of Defense is both the nation's and the world's largest polluter. Producing more hazardous waste than the five largest U.S. chemical companies combined, the U.S. Department of Defense has left its toxic legacy throughout the world in the form of depleted uranium, oil, jet fuel, pesticides, defoliants like Agent Orange and lead, among others. In 2014, the former head of the Pentagon's environmental program told Newsweek that her office has to contend with 39,000 contaminated areas spread across 19 million acres just in the U.S. alone. U.S. military bases, both domestic and foreign, consistently rank among some of the most polluted places in the world as perchlorate and other components of jet and rocket fuel contaminate sources of drinking water, aquifers, and soil. Hundreds of military bases can be found on the Environmental Protection Agency's list of Superfund sites, which qualify for cleanup grants from the government. Almost 900 of the nearly 1,200 Superfund sites in the U.S. are abandoned military facilities or sites that otherwise support military needs, not counting the military bases themselves. Um, Almost every military site in the country is seriously contaminated, John D. Dingle, a retired Michigan congressman and war veteran, told Newsweek in 2014. Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina, is one such base. Lejeune's contamination became widespread and even deadly after its groundwater was polluted with a sizable amount of carcinogens from 1953 to 1987. However, it was not until this February that the government allowed those exposed to chemicals at Lejeune to make official compensation claims. Numerous bases abroad have also contaminated local drinking water supplies, most famously the Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa. In addition, the U.S., which has conducted more nuclear weapons tests than all other nations combined, the U.S. has a, side note, the U.S. has this weird thing about being number one. It's like we should focus about what, you know, uh, and I, I guess I guess I'm part of it, so I'm part of this country. I live here. Ugh, 
but the idea of being number one, we should really think about what that means. Do we really want to be number one at that? Oh, which has conducted, okay, more nuclear weapons tests than all other nations combined is also responsible. That's not all, folks. We're also responsible for the massive amount of radiation that continues to contaminate many islands in the Pacific Ocean. The Marshall Islands, where the U.S. dropped more than 60 nuclear weapons between 1946 and 1958, are a particularly notable example. Inhabitants of the Marshall Islands and nearby Guam continue to experience an exceedingly high rate of cancer. The American Southwest was also the site of numerous nuclear weapons tests that contaminated large swaths of land. Navajo Indian reservations have been polluted by long-abandoned uranium mines, where nuclear material was obtained by the U.S. military by U.S. military contractors. One of the most recent testaments to the U.S. military's horrendous environmental record is Iraq. U.S. military action there has resulted in the desertification of 90% of Iraqi territory, crippling the country's agricultural industry and forcing it to import more than 80% of its food. The U.S.'s use of depleted uranium in Iraq during the Gulf War also caused a massive environmental burden for Iraqis. In addition, the U.S. military's policy of using open-air burn pits to dispose of waste from the 2003 invasion has caused a surge in cancer among U.S. servicemen and Iraqi civilians alike. And in the article, they share a photo. Four-year-old Allah Salim lies on a hospital bed in Basara, Iraq, January 15, 2001. Allah suffers from a tumor in her eye caused by depleted uranium used by the U.S. during the Gulf War. While the U.S. military's past environmental records suggest that its current policies are not sustainable, this has by no means dissuaded the U.S. military from openly planning future contamination of the environment through misguided waste disposal efforts. Last November, the U.S. Navy announced its plan to release 20,000 tons of environmental stressors, and stressors is in quotation marks, including heavy metals and explosives into coastal waters of the U.S. Pacific Northwest over the course of this year. Ah, the plan uh, laid out in the Navy's Northwest Training and Testing uh, Environmental Impact Statement, EIS, fails to mention that these stressors are described by the EPA as known hazards, many of which are highly toxic at both acute and chronic levels. The 20,000 tons of stressors mentioned in the EIS do not account for the additional 4.7 to 14 tons of metal with potential toxicity that the Navy plans to release annually from now on into inland waters along the Puget Sound in Washington State. <sighs> in response to concerns about these plans, a Navy spokeswoman said that heavy metals and even depleted uranium are no more dangerous than any other metal, a statement that represents a clear rejection of scientific fact. It seems that the very U.S. military operations meant to, quote-unquote, keep Americans safe, come at a higher cost than most people realize, a cost that will be felt for generations to come, both within the United States and abroad. And this article was first published on May 15th, 2017. Uh, uh, wow. That's <laughs> everything right there. And I feel if with the, there's a surge in, I mean, there's always been environmental activists and there's a surge in a lot of the younger folks also marching now in, in London, certainly. And if there's not an anti-war element an anti-militaristic, anti-imperialist element into our, in, in terms of the 
organizing and protesting, then there's not a lot that can be accomplished, I feel. So really hoping that folks can understand this narrative and see who the really the biggest polluters are. Instead of individuals, it's really this systemic force that has been polluting for generations and also decades and also has no sense of accountability and there doesn't seem to be any uh, indication that they're willing to change their behavior or to atone for it in any way. And that says does not even even amount for just the, the human lives that are killed in, in war. Oh, wow. <sighs> Taking a breath. Okay. Leads me to, oh, goodness, okay. Uh, while we're on the topic of the military, it's another article. Uh, I, I guess it's it's a segue to have, uh, yeah, it's, oof. I'm going to keep on moving through, and hopefully if folks are listening, uh, or when you're listening, if it's too much, I recognize you can press the pause button and continue a little bit later, or just even listen right through and it's difficult to say these words and it's, that's such a small, small piece of it. I was talking to a friend yesterday about it and I feel like I'm just doing a very little here. All I'm doing is just merely reporting what's happening and what other folks have reported on and people have done the research and I'm merely sharing that with folks and I want to use my voice in that way and just recognizing this is what's happening in the world and we can't do anything about it until we accept what's, what's happening. Oh, <sighs> So this comes from CommonDreams.org. Unprecedented. UN finds U.S.-backed forces killed more Afghan civilians than Taliban and ISIS did so far in 2019. A shocking number of civilians continue to be killed and maimed each day. And this was written by Jessica Corbett. In an unprecedented revelation that highlights the consequences of the seemingly endless war in Afghanistan, the United Nations announced Wednesday that U.S.-backed forces killed more Afghan civilians than the Taliban and other armed anti-government groups did in the first three months of this year. A new quarterly report from the U.N. Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, UNAMA, shows that pro-government forces, including both Afghan and international troops, killed 305 civilians from January to the end of March. That, compared with 227 civilians killed by anti-government elements such as the Taliban and ISIS, there are 49 unattributable deaths, which includes those caught in crossfire. And they share a chart as well. A shocking number of civilians continue to be killed and maimed each day, Tadamichi Yamamoto, the UN Secretary General's Special Representative for Afghanistan, said in a statement Wednesday, while encouraging all parties to do more to safeguard civilians, Yamamoto specifically urged anti-government elements, which injured more civilians in early 2009 than pro-government forces did, to stop targeting civilians, particularly with improvised explosive devices, IEDs. Yamamoto also called on pro-government forces to take immediate measures to mitigate the rising death toll and suffering caused by airstrikes and search operations. Such tactics drove an overall increase in civilian casualties, deaths, and injuries from these forces, according to the report. In Afghanistan, massive airstrikes, drone operations, and brutal night raids are killing more civilians in these days than any insurgent group does, Emran Farouz an Austro-Afghan independent journalist and founder of Drone Memorial tweeted Wednesday, citing the report, "This is not a surprise for those who are researching, for those who are researching for years." 
The UN AMA report details in the increased harm to civilians from aerial and search operations this year. Pro-government forces carried out 43 aerial operations in the first quarter of 2019 that resulted in 2000, excuse me, that resulted in 228 civilian casualties, 145 deaths, 83 injured, with international military forces responsible for 39 of these operations, resulting in 219 civilian casualties, 140 deaths, 79 injured. Women and children comprised half of the civilian casualties from all aerial operations. Pro-government forces caused 102 civilian casualties, 72 deaths, and 30 injured across 32 search operations, which is an 85% increase in civilian casualties as compared to the first quarter of 2018. The majority, 80% of the search operations resulting in civilian casualties, were attributed to either the National Directorate of Security Special Forces or the Coast Protection Force, both of which are supported by international military forces. UNAMA reiterates its concern that these forces appear to act with impunity outside of the governmental chain of command. The report reiterates UNAMA's demands for greater transparency and accountability for each operations, for excuse me, for search operations and for the Afghan government to either disband the Coast Protection Force or formally incorporate members into its armed forces. In response to the report, U.S. spokesman in Afghanistan, Colonel Dave Butler, told Al Jazeera, we reserve the right for, of self-defense for our forces, as well as the Afghan security forces. The best way to end the suffering of non-combatants is to end the fighting through an agreed-upon reduction in violence on all sides. Both Afghan President uh, Ashraf Ghani and the Taliban, which controls nearly half the country, recently have urged their respective fighters to take care to avoid civilian casualties, the Associated Press reported Wednesday. After reaching a record high last year, Afghan civilian casualties declined overall in the first quarter of 2019, which the report notes was possibly influenced by harsh winter conditions in the country. The report says it is unclear whether the decrease in civilian casualties was influenced by any measures taken by parties to the conflict to better protect civilians or by the ongoing talks between the parties to the conflict. In recent months, the Taliban has engaged in talks with the United States, but refused to negotiate directly with Ghani's government. But as long as the war continues, civilians remain at risk. And the article goes on. There's another paragraph or so. So if folks would like to continue reading and check more out, please do go to commondreams.org. And you can check out the article there. I believe we've also shared it on our page, which is at facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. Wow. All right, it's 12.26. We've got a little bit more coming up for you all. Oh, my goodness. Um, I feel like taking a bit of a music break. I'm going to play one song. And this comes from, I was looking for Mayday songs. So The Nation had posted, uh, I think a couple years ago, the top 12 Mayday songs. And so the first song we heard was 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. And they have a few more songs on here that I'll be playing uh, throughout. So... Next up, we'll hear uh, Gil Scott Heron from Three Miles Down. And we'll be back after this. Yeah, that's the best thing I did all day. You know, I had given up playing this song for a while. Until I got back over here. 
first headline I noticed it had to do with the coal miners union again. I said, wait. So I started to put this back in my repertoire since it's still in the news. And this is a song that we like to start off with because we like to all start off together figuring there's a better chance of us ending up that way. So I'd like to have y'all sing with us if you could. This is going to be the part. The coal miners sing on their way to work. Now I know there are a lot of you who don't do songs about coal miners, but this may soon change if you have to go get your own coal. <laughs> you wake up in the morning, a little lamp on your hat. <laughs> You'll be glad you know this song. Some of y'all in the back got to sing louder. Come on, one, two, say, hey. Do, 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 do. It's all right. Do, 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 do. Say, do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. Here come the mind cars. Damn it on. Another shift of men, some of my friends coming on. Hard to imagine I'm working in the mines. Got coal dust in your lungs, on your skin, on your mind. Yeah, when I've listened to the speeches, and it occurred to me, politicians don't understand. Thoughts of isolation, ain't no sunshine on the ground. Three miles down to do 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 My name is Maddie. My name is Ari. And I pledge not to donate to or recommend Birthright. Thousands of Jewish students go And welcome back to Leakly Review. 
uh, a little bit of a technical issue here. So we'll be back in just one second. Well, I'm here. No one's going anywhere. It's more the segue I was trying to do from the song into the audio clip did not go as seamlessly as I had hoped. So let's see if we can try this again. This is Becca Lubo. I'm Emma. Hi, my name is Ruthie. My name is Becca Lubo. I'm Emma. My name is Maddie. My name is Ari. And I pledge not to donate to or recommend Birthright. Thousands of Jewish students go on Birthright every year. Birthright's politics matter. By hiding human rights violations and pretending Palestinians don't exist, Birthright enables the occupation to continue. Since my trip a year and a half ago, I've learned how Birthright contributes to the occupation, and I don't want this to go on any longer. I believe that Birthright is failing in its responsibility as a Jewish educator by lying to young Jews about the occupation, and I believe that we, as a generation, can demand better. Birthright is a trip designed to ensure that the occupation continues with our generation's support. My vision for the new Jewish future is one of shared liberation. My vision for the new Jewish future demands that we tell our people the truth about what's happening in Hebron. My vision for a new Jewish future is one that fights unequivocally for dignity and rights for all people. My vision for a new Jewish future is a vibrant and engaged community that doesn't need the bribe of a free trip to validate our Jewishness. I believe in a Jewish future that stands against injustice. All right, so those were some young folks speaking. And if you follow If Not Now on Twitter, that's at If Not Now Org, you can find updates. That's where I found that video. Uh, and they write, uh, Jewish college students have spent the last two days, and this was uh, shared 20 hours ago, so that was yesterday. Uh, Jewish college students have spent the last two days sitting in at their campus Hillel's to demand that they cut ties with birthright. Hillel's response, silence, scorn, and calls to the police. Even if Hillel's won't join us, we've decided it's time to hashtag break up with birthright. And if you go to ifnotnowmovement.org, you can find more information. They have an update from April 24th. Early this afternoon, the Jewish students at University of Chicago concluded their sit-in on Hillel's lawn, confident that their message had been delivered as powerfully as possible. Later in the evening, Jewish students from Northeastern held a Seder in the streets outside their Hillel after they were told by Hillel's executive director that If Not Now is not welcome to host any events at Hillel. Since Hillel refused to let them in and refuses to cut ties with birthright, the students took matters into their own hands and celebrated Passover in front of the Hillel instead, or in front of Hillel instead, and they have a live stream as well. So if you're interested in getting in touch, if you are a, a Jewish person in the States and would like to support younger folks in terms of cutting ties with birthright and the lies that are told about the occupation. Um, if not now is one organization, there's a few a Jewish voice for peace is another one as well. There's different orgs that you can join. Um, so yeah, if you go to if not now and also Jewish voice for peace, those are the first two that come to mind. I'd imagine there was probably more out there as well. It's great to lend your voice and support the folks who are speaking up about this. Great. Okay. Coming up next. And believe me, there's there's so much more. It's like a whole menu of what's going on in the world. The positive thing about the show is that there are so many people who are speaking up, and that gives me a lot of faith in humanity and a lot of hope that there are folks who are continuing to fight. Which brings us to our next story. Haha. There's a segue for you right there. And this comes from Democracy Now! And they include a video as well as an interview. Um, it's all just, it's all right here. So 
um, students at Johns Hopkins have been protesting the contracts that the stu- that the school has with ICE for weeks now. So I'm going to play um, some clips about this as well as interview with some of the students who are protesting. And if you'd like to check it out in full, please go to democracynow.org. And the title is uh, Johns Hopkins Students Enter Week 4 of Sit-In Protesting ICE Contracts and Plan for Armed Campus and Plan and the Plan for Armed Campus Cops, which is fucking awful. Ugh. Not a fan of cops. Okay, so we're going to play this here and we'll be back afterwards. This is Democracy Now! as we turn to another student protest. Yes, we turn now to a protest over Im- uh, immigration at, by students at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, which, which has entered the 20th day. Uh, the students have been sitting in for 20 days uh, uh, in protesting the university's plans for an armed police force on campus, as well as Johns Hopkins' contract with, custom, with immigration and customs enforcement. The Hopkins students are demanding the cancellation of contracts with ICE and a pledge to donate all money received from ICE to Baltimore's Immigration Defense Fund. They're also demanding voluntary recognition for all workers wishing to unionize and a student and faculty representative spot on the university's board of trustees. Democracy Now! invited Johns Hopkins to join us on our show, but the university declined our request. We are going, though, to Baltimore, Maryland, where we're joined by two guests. Mariam Banahi is a Johns Hopkins graduate student participating in the sit-in. She's a Ph.D. candidate in anthropology, writing a dissertation on asylum seekers in Germany. And Chris Bilal is a member of Students Against Private Police and also a member of the Washington Hill Community Association, who's participating in the Johns Hopkins sit-in. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Mariam, let's begin with your um, protest around Johns Hopkins' relationship with ICE. What is it? So we're very interested in uh, how Hopkins presents itself as an ethical university and concerned with uh, health and safety um, at home, but also its contracts with ICE. So since 2008, Hopkins has profited and made about uh, $7 million from its contracts with ICE. Uh, currently, there's uh, about $1.7 million in contracts that are ongoing, and these are um, which Hop. The administration puts these in terms that it's supportive of medical care and uh, things like that, rather than actually supporting the detaining of um, asylum seekers. However, we see that as a kind of abstraction of the violence being enacted, but because uh, they support the actual structures that make uh, the wor- that facilitate the workings of ICE. Um, so these contracts are set to expire this year. So we would like the university to end its contracts with ICE and. Uh, donate the proceeds to something like the Immigrant Defense Fund. Which is what? Um, It it provides support uh, for immigrants, uh, asylum seekers and uh, court cases, but also other kinds of immigrant justice efforts that can be decided upon later. Now, another issue has been uh, the uh, university's attempt to begin to have an armed police force. Could you talk about that as well? Yeah, um, I think Bilal can speak uh, to that as well. well yeah, Bilal, yes. um, legislation just passed. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, very dangerous legislation has just passed in Baltimore, granting this 
University, which is a repeat offender in terms of crimes against Baltimore City residents, um, has they now have a police power. Um, and so, again, 75 percent of the students at John Hopkins University said they did not want the police force. A bunch of community associations, primarily um, across Baltimore City, also said that they did not want this force. There was a letter written by 100 faculty members of the administration who also said that, you know, they wanted to disarm, de-escalate, and kind of defund this machine that was going to happen, and um, really calling for other solutions and investment in um, things like mediation, Safe Streets, ROCA, and community-driven alternatives to policing, because as a public health institution, um, Johns Hopkins University knows better and knows that more policing does not equate with less crime, but that more policing actually causes gentrification, um, it causes more anxiety and public health concerns around communities, it causes the extraction of wealth from communities, and also normalizes state-sanctioned violence and terror against black and brown bodies across America. So yeah, a lot of the students are kind of challenging and um, demonstrating against this investment in the mass incarceration system and the school-to-prison pipeline, and are demanding equity um, in terms of Hopkins reinvesting that money after divesting into community-driven alternatives that actually support the sustainability um, and wellness of people in Baltimore City. And, uh, Mariam, I wanted to ask you about the sit-in and the uh, how long it's lasted now, 20 days, and what the administration's response has been. But I wanted to first play the, uh, a clip that earlier this month, some of your protesters uh, confronted the university's president, Ron Daniels, and, and, uh, and he, uh, he peppered him with questions, and he refused to answer any of their questions. Let's go to a clip from that exchange. Receive. So, I mean, yeah. you just want to be so, I, as I said to you, I have no intention of uh, scheduling anything with you until you clear out, of the, clear out of the building, and then you can get what any other student group is always available to, which is schedule a meeting if you want to talk about things you're concerned. Yeah, so we've been, trying to discuss, guys, we've been trying to discuss the private police for over a year. Uh, that was the president being confronted by one of the uh, one of the students, one of your fellow protesters. Mariam, what has been the response of the university to this long sit-in now? Yes, yeah, so we're actually going into—today is day 21 of the sit-in, so um, it's it's been going for three weeks now. Uh, we'll continue it, and we'll continue to escalate. Um, the university response has actually been quite disappointing. Um, we actually have—it's basically non-response. As you saw, President Daniels, the provost, uh, Provost Kumar, refuses to speak with us. Um, the, and they also, since the beginning, have refused to offer us any um, anything in writing uh, from our conversations and the like. The only responses that we receive for them are uh, coordinated drop-offs of basically threats, um, written statements, any time that there is a supposed violation um, that they deem is a violation. Um, so I think they're creating a paper trail in order to uh, pursue disciplinary actions against students as soon as this is over, as soon as it's over for them. But um, so it's, it's quite alarming that there are these methods being used to intimidate protesters, intimidate students, as well as um, we've heard reports that the dean's office has been calling faculty members, especially faculty members who are in more precarious positions and threatening them to discourage them from supporting the sit-in, from anyone who's stepping in the space is also being uh, pursued and surveilled in these ways, which is extremely alarming and which uh, actually gives credibility to our concerns about what Hopkins would do with its own private armed police force on campus and beyond and in the community. Um, 
Another thing to mention is that the faculty uh, supports the sit-in. Um, there's a unanimous faculty assembly um, uh, uh, resolutions, so um, there, the community is also supportive of the sit-in, and the support is growing. Um, surely it's growing, and we had um, a great number of supporters coming in this weekend. We have uh, a whole slew of events this week and into the weekend that are um, already being advertised. Pastor Heber Brown III of Pope uh, Pleasant Hope Baptist Church um, has expressed his support and um, came and visited us on Sunday with members of his congregation, and we'll do that again next Sunday at 4 p.m., so all are welcome. And yeah, and I was going to—I wanted to add to that. Is is that I was one of the people who was asking the questions to President Daniels. Um, and as a community member, I think that the administration's posture of silence towards communities um, is really bad. And I know folks who are involved in kind of like similar movements in the past will understand when act upset that silence equals death. So a lot what was interesting is his, his answers to a lot of the questions. Um, the police forces build is something that will generate safety for the people and residents of Baltimore and the students of John Hopkins University. But the more that I speak to students, um, especially women on campus, there is a big trend of women saying that they'll feel safe when sexual assault um, is investigated on campus, that safety looks like investigating frat houses that have committed sexual crimes against um, folks on campus. I've also learned that one out of three undergrads also face sexual assault. And there was this weird case at Hopkins where 18 cases of sexual assault were like kind of um, deleted and kind of like this weird um, computer glitch. So when people talk about safety, that's actually a lie um, because Hopkins has been unable to protect its own students and make its own students feel safe, so there's no way that they're going to be able to make people like me safe without profiling me. Um, it was also really scary. I asked President Daniels about um, mediation, um, because basically Hopkins has a long history of experimenting on black and brown people in Baltimore. It has a huge history of not paying taxes in Baltimore. Um, John Hopkins, as a person, was actually a liquor um, distributor who like poisoned people, and also his family like owned tobacco farms. Um, and so they have a long history of poisoning the people of Baltimore and also not like listening to people of Baltimore. So this is a situation where students were demanding a mediation, you know, so, like the faculty senate kind of proposed a neutral, non-Hopkins affiliated, mutually agreed upon mediator um, in which the folks could talk to um, administration officials like Dean, Smita, um, and Kevin, and Ron Daniels, who have sat in spaces. And I've heard these students talk about their concerns about safety, talk about their concerns about the accountability board, talk about their concerns around the boundaries, talked about how they want President Ron Daniels to resign. And if Ron Daniels doesn't want to resign, I believe um, that he should mediate with students or negotiate with students. Or again, he there was a part in the video when he said, are you going to come to dinner? And I think we would like to come to dinner. I think that we would actually like to see Ron Daniels come to the sit-in and have dinner with students and community members and the coalition of interfaith folks who are interested in this to come through. Um, or we can have dinner at President Daniel's house because the last time that he invited the BSU, the Black Student Union, um, to his house around concerns around this, he actually kicked them out and said that they are ungrateful. So we're also demanding that he speak with the BSU, that he speak with people from the black and brown communities who have not been consulted, and that they also continue those meetings that they were having, these public meetings around the police force. They cancel those meetings and refuse to talk to people. Okay, so Bilal, this strategy I 
violence. I interrupt you because really we, we only have a few more minutes, but I wanted to ask you one of the demands of the sit-in is justice for Tyrone West. And I want to turn to West's sister, Tawanda yes. Jones, speaking to WMAR2 News. To know that this can happen, these are not isolated incidents by far. It's systemically happening. It's happening all over the world. Accountability looks like those officers involved in my brother's brutal execution held accountable. For those who don't know, who was uh, Tyrone West? Um, Tyrone West was a Baltimorean who was the sister of Tawanda. Brother, uh, brother. Sorry, the brother of Tawanda. Um, um, and he was actually murdered by police officers from Morgan State University, another university in Baltimore City, which has a police force um, that Hopkins is modeling their police force off of. Um, and so Sister West has been out here for—and next week will be her 300th week outside demanding justice for Tyrone West. You know, the state actually didn't, like, release a lot of information in the case. There are a lot of discrepancies in the coroner's report. Um, there are two different autopsies, one that kind of basically says that he was murdered um, in a case of state-sanctioned terror against him. And then, of course, the state's narrative, which says that, you know, he killed himself which happens all too often. So Tawanda West has been out there every Wednesday for 299 weeks demanding justice and accountability for her brother. And, um, you know, this is really sad because we were just, you know, watching the news from Yale, how a police officer from Yale also just shot Stephanie and Paul. So we're asking for justice for Tyrone West and justice for Stephanie and Paul. And we also agree with their demands to disarm the um, YPD department and disarm John Hopkins University. And this, this also um, ties back to the case at Barnard recently with Alexander McNabb being stopped by campus police uh, coming in. He was a Columbia student going on to Barnard's campus, which is normal, business as usual. Um, I'm a Barnard alumna, so I was extremely disturbed by seeing this. And he was accosted and pinned to the counter once he entered the library. And it, this, this has been repetitive. Um, however, President Bylock of Barnard has had a much uh, I guess, better response to what has happened than President Daniels has at Hopkins. She's been calling for changes. She recognizes the pernicious racial, racialized atmosphere um, and the racial profiling that takes place at, uh, on campuses. Well, so mm -hmm. I think Ron Daniels needs to take a look at this. Mariam Benahi, we want to thank you for being with us. Johns Hopkins graduate student in anthropology and Chris Bilal, member of Students Against Private Police and also a member of the Washington Hill Community Association. Both participating in the sit-in, now in its 21st day at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. When we okay, so, yes, um, folks can check out this in full at uh, democracynow.org. Uh, okay, I'm talking, I'm planning out the rest of the show. So, around 1 o'clock, we're going to start playing the talk given by Fred Glass about the origins of May Day, so please do stay tuned for that. And I also have another story I wanted to get to. Um, so, uh, we're gonna, oh, there's two, well, there's a lot of stories. Okay. We got eight minutes. I also wanted to play some music to just, uh, cleanse the palate a little bit in the, in the middle. Um, so I'll just read a headline. I'll read two headlines and then play some music. That's a compromise I'm making to myself. From The Guardian, uh, Uber drivers plan to shut down over poverty wages as company goes public. Drivers will turn off apps in seven U.S. cities on May 8th as collectives condemn IPO for lining executives' pockets. 
Again, this is from The Guardian, written by Carrie Paul, and it came out on Wednesday, April 24th. I'll read a little bit. Uber drivers in the U.S. will stage a shutdown for 12 hours to protest against poor working conditions and low wages as the company goes public in May. Drivers will log off the app in seven cities starting at noon on May 8th, the day Uber is expected to make its IPO. Drivers in San Francisco will also protest in front of the Uber headquarters. The action is backed by driver collectives, including Gig Workers Rising in Northern California, Rideshare Drivers United in Los Angeles, and Chicago rideshare advocates. Uber's much-anticipated IPO will put millions into the pockets of executives, but the drivers who are the core of the service of the company will get nothing. Shauna Clarkson, an organizer with Gigs Working, excuse me, Gig Workers Rising, said, "Uber is paying drivers poverty wages and continues to slash wages while executives make millions. Drivers for Uber and Lyft, the Uber rival that went public in March, make a median wage of as little as eight fifty-five an hour before taxes, below the California minimum." minimum wage of $11 an hour and barely above the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. As part of the action, drivers in San Francisco have four main demands, a living wage, transparency in Uber's decision-making, employee benefits, and a voice in company decisions. As gas prices go up and wages go down, there is growing interest among unhappy ride-hailing app drivers and organizing, said Mustafa Maklad, a driver who has worked for Uber in San Francisco for the last four years and who is now organizing with Gig Workers Rising. We have tried to reach out to Uber many times, but they just ignore our actions, he said. They don't want to talk to drivers. They just want to keep us away from their decisions. We have no say in Uber, no right to know how much money we are making, and no insight into the company's decisions. Uber has claimed its drivers are not employees, but contractors, making it more difficult for them to be given traditional employee rights, like paid time off, insurance, and vacation. The company asserted this view in its S1 filing ahead of the IPO, saying... We believe that drivers, yes, S1, uh, we believe that drivers are independent contractors because, among other things, they can choose whether, when, and where to provide services on our platform, um, are free to provide services on our competitors' platforms, and provide a vehicle to perform services on our platform. Okay. A UK court ruled in 20, yeah, <laughs> reading a bit too fast. A UK court ruled in 2016 drivers are workers, not contractors, and entitled to benefits like minimum wage and holiday pay. Uber said it's S- said in its S1 that challenges like these could be material to its business. Uber did not respond to a request for comment regarding the protest. McLeod said many Uber drivers in San Francisco drive into town from other cities and sleep in their cars. To make enough money to support themselves, they often drive more than 70 to 80 hours a week, leading to safety concerns for drivers and the public. A 2018 study from the University of Chicago showed fatal car crashes increased in cities where Uber and Lyft were introduced. Ah! I'm so angry. I'm so, oh, I'm so angry. Okay. Drivers have been unhappy with Uber for some time, but the IPO may cause them to reach a boiling point, he said. To Uber executives, we are not human beings who deserve to be treated as human beings, he said. We are just another number on a page that they can use and abuse to get more money. Ugh. Fuck that. Okay, and more power to all the workers for May 8th, on May 8th, for signing to uh, call out for 12 hours. That's excellent. Okay, the next article, I think the headline pretty much says it all. I'm not going to read it. Uh, Oh, there's another one, too. Okay, first up, 
Oh, okay. For one article um, from USA Today, of all places, we found 85,000 cops who've been investigated for misconduct. Now you can read their records. So USA Today, which is surprising, USA Today is leading a national effort to obtain and publish disciplinary and misconduct records for thousands of police officers. And this is written by John Kelly and Mark Nichols, and it came out also on April 26th. So you check that article out as well. And back in the day, back in the day, as in two years ago, or last year even, I don't know the years. Yeah, it was 2015, I think. 2014, 2015, and maybe even 2013, The Guardian had The Counted, which um, chronicled folks who had been killed by police and with their names and information about them and their cases. And then they stopped doing it in 2016. Um, So I appreciate that USA Today is continuing on with the sharing the information about cops who have been investigated for misconduct and sharing more information about that. So that's one, one thing. The second story um, is about, there's a lot of horrific uh, rhetoric online as in person. And many folks have been calling Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter, who's going to be calm and not anyway. So people have been telling him to kick the Nazis off Twitter. It's just a pretty simple request, not asking too much, not that difficult. However, he hasn't. And now in uh, Vice, uh, motherboard, uh, if you go to motherboard.vice.com, there's an article that came out on April 25th. Why won't Twitter treat why why won't Twitter treat white supremacy like ISIS? Because it would mean banning some Republican politicians too, which of course makes sense. A Twitter employee who works on machine learning believes that a proactive algorithmic solution to white supremacy would also catch Republican politicians. And of course that makes sense. People like David Duke are still on there. A lot of people with a lot of fucking awful things to say and do are, are on there on the platform still, which is disgusting. So if you'd like to read more about that, go to motherboard.vice.com and you can search this article, which came out on April 25th and was written by Joseph Cox and Jason Kobler or Kabler. Okay. So, uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to play some music and then we're going to get into the talk about the origins of May day. Um, uh, how about, uh, I can't decide what to play. Okay. Uh, all right. We'll play some Clash.
long and long Long and long Yeah, I'm working hard in Harrisburg Working hard in Petersburg Working for the Clampton Working for the Clampton Hopping long and long Begging to be melted down Long and long Chairs of the Labor Organizing Committee. 
You may know us out in the community for our work with the Anchor uh, Brewing Union Drive. Um, you may also know us uh, for supporting the contract campaign with uh, the, uh, the VCA, Vet Tech Workers, uh, which is going on right now. Um, and uh, for some of our work supporting the, um, uh, the Go Bike Workers that recently uh, unionized uh, in, the, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and so we're going to have a couple of, uh, of events in the next, in the next few weeks that sort of tells the story of some of these really, um, you know, kind of important campaigns in recent labor history with Anchor, Go Bike Workers, and also some really uh, exciting tech worker organizing, and organizing of, you know, people in sort of normal working class jobs, like, uh, you know, food service on, on tech campuses. Uh, on the 16th here, 16th of May, rather, um, with our Future of Labor panel. Um, there's going to be folks from Anchor, folks from the Tech Workers Coalition, um, folks, folks from the Ford Go Bike Workers, um, and, and, other, and other places. And uh, most, of, most of these folks are DSA comrades, but some of them are also just community members who are very active in, in labor organizing. And I'm, I'm really excited about this uh, uh, program in particular because just about everyone, if not all of the people on the panel, are just sort of normal rank-and-file workers. They're not necessarily um, people who, you know, have like union organizing jobs or staff or, you know, pundits or whatever. It's just, you know, normal, normal people. So, um, uh, yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things that makes this museum great is it tells the story of normal working-class people. For my mind, it's the best. Uh, Museum about Working Class History in, in San Francisco. And um, uh, DSA San Francisco is really fucking so have this have this uh, uh, program. Anyways, um, uh, I, I will uh, uh, let you guys go. We will also have one event coming up on the 23rd of May with Chris Carlson from Shaping SF talking about the, um, the 34 general strike. Uh, which, as many of you know, led to um, almost the total shutdown of, of San Francisco over uh, a series of, of labor disputes. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. Um, and uh, I, without uh, any further ado, uh, uh, here is uh, Fred Glass to talk about his uh, book in just a minute. Thanks to San Francisco DSA and to the Tenderloin Museum, and to Gene for helping to set up the AV here. And thank you all for coming out here on a, on a Tuesday night. Uh, I have three PSAs to start with, public service announcements. Um, on the table in there by the door, there are a few handouts. I want to draw your attention to one in particular, which is the uh, brochure for the Labor in the Schools Committee of the California Federation of Teachers. This is a group of folks who, for the last 30-some year, years, have produced materials for use in teaching about the labor movement in K-12, um, but also non-traditional settings and within unions and so forth. So these are useful materials if you wish to know more about unions or if you wish to teach about unions. Um, secondly, uh, 
Katie mentioned my book, so please help me to become rich beyond my wildest dreams by buying my book. That is the reason why I wrote it, and the only reason, so you can help me out that way. Um, all labor historians write their books that way. And um, finally, the Labor and Community Studies Program, um, of which a number of people are here, thanks to James Tracy, who's a teacher in the program with me. Uh, this program is the only one in San Francisco besides San Francisco State University, which uh, does this sort of programming in a different way. But it's the only one in San Francisco where you can really get a formal education in what the working class is about and how it organizes itself. So I highly recommend that in the fall, you look to the classes offered by the Labor and Community Studies Department at City College of San Francisco. Those are the public service announcements, and, uh, and let's get started. So I'm going to apologize, I'm going to read this, because I find that as I get older, which is something happening to me, uh, I get more long-winded unless I write things down. So you don't want to be here for the next hour and a half, and neither do I. So this is a 35-minute presentation, and it will be 35 minutes because I read it. There are two origins for the holiday of May Day, related but different. One is the ancient celebration of spring, the renewal of the earth, and the promise of rebirth in the seasons. The other is the assertion of worker rights, also promising a rebirth of sorts, but in this case, the rebirth of our society on the basis of solidarity and social justice. I'll say just a few words about the first one and focus my remarks mostly on the second, since that's the labor history part of May Day. The old May Day, which is still celebrated in many places around the world, especially in Europe, originated with a Roman pagan festival called the Floralia. It celebrated Flora, the Roman goddess of flowers, and included Bacchanalia, quite a bit of dancing and other types of sensual pleasure, as is appropriate for a holiday about fertility and procreation. <laughs> Depending on the calendar used, this early May Day was a holiday associated with either spring or summer, and various versions of it appeared in different cultures. As with many pagan holidays, when Europe was becoming Christianized, May Day became contested terrain. In some places, it was incorporated into one or another Catholic saint's days, as in the 18th century, when it became a feast day of St. Joseph the Worker, husband of Mary, surrogate father to Jesus, and, of course, a carpenter. In the 19th century, May Day morphed in most places into a secular holiday marking the coming of spring. Common rituals associated with May Day included dancing around a maypole, crowning a May Queen, and giving May baskets to friends and neighbors. Each of these activities involved flowers. Good, clean fun. It was also in the 19th century that we find the beginnings of the International Workers' Holiday. As you will soon see, that May Day has, for more than a century and a half, been associated with a few key concepts and serves as a measure of ever-changing relationships in the balance of power between workers and the capitalist class. By way of introduction to that May Day, let me tell you about a recent experience of mine when I was asked to give testimony in Sacramento on a bill supported by the California Federation of Teachers, AB 3042, which was introduced last year into the legislature by Assemblyman McGill Santiago, a brave thing that he did in doing this. 
He and I appeared before the Assembly Education Committee. Santiago briefly described his bill, telling the committee that it combined the current Lincoln Day and Washington Day into one holiday known as President's Day. The bill then designated May 1st as a school holiday to be known as International Workers' Day. It noted that the month of May is already officially Labor History Month in California. How many of you know that? Nobody, of course, because it's a quiet Labor History Month. <laughs> but if you as a teacher are ever interested in teaching about labor history during the month of May, it's enshrined in California law. Nobody can tell you you can't do that. Uh, so anyway, this bill noted that it is officially Labor History Month in California, thanks to an earlier piece of legislation. But AB 3042 specifically calls for schools to teach about the history of May Day, as well as making May 1st a holiday. Assemblymember Santiago introduced me, and here's part of what I said to the Assembly Education Committee members. <coughs> and there's me, shot off the monitor while I was doing my uh, testimony. May Day, or International Workers' Day, celebrates the birth of the movement for the eight-hour workday a seemingly impossible goal at a time in the 19th century when 10 and even 12-hour days were common, six and sometimes seven days a week, in many industries. It would write an historic injustice for the holiday to finally be celebrated officially somewhere here in the USA. That's because this country is where the events occurred, strikes and demonstrations by a largely immigrant workforce in the 1880s, that began the movement for the eight-hour day, which was only crowned with success 50 years later with the passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act, part of the New Deal. Today, when labor and immigrant rights are under attack in other states and in Congress and in the courts and above all by the President of the United States, California can lead the way to a positive educational alternative to these anti-worker, anti-immigrant policies by bringing this holiday home. When I finished my testimony, there was a little moment of silence. I could see the assembly members in front of me were confused. A couple were smiling, a couple were frowning, and no one was saying anything, which was very unusual for assembly members. I thought I knew what the problem was. During the Cold War, each year on May Day, the Soviet Union would hold a giant military parade in Moscow. A picture like this, not workers peacefully demonstrating, which is what they typically do around the rest of the world, was usually featured on the news that evening. I guess this picture was the one in the minds of these assembly members. Finally, one said to Santiago, I don't understand. We already have Labor Day in September. Why do we need International Workers Day on May 1st? What's the difference? Santiago said, Labor Day is for workers in the United States. May Day is for all workers everywhere. The bill made it out of committee and then died on the assembly floor. And that's that for now. But the question that the assemblyman asked involves more than the simple answer given by Santiago. To understand the answer, we have to look at this history behind how May Day became a worker's holiday practically everywhere in the world outside the USA. We need to look specifically at the events of 1886. But the roots of the struggle go back even further. In the early 19th century, as the United States began to industrialize, there were conflicts between workers and their employers over how many hours should make up the proper length of the workday. 
at least as much as the rate of pay or safe working conditions in dangerous workplaces, a desire to reduce the hours of work was behind worker discontent. Most workers at that time were expected to be on the job for 10, 12, and sometimes more hours a day, and the work week was usually six days, or even seven, not five. That's the historical reality beneath the bumper sticker that you've probably seen that says unions, the folks that brought you the weekend. There were no worker protection laws like those we have today regulating the workplace during the Gilded Age. Most labor laws tended to be anti-worker and unions were generally considered by the courts to be uh, unlawful conspiracies against the God-given right of bosses to do whatever they wanted. As George Baer, president of the Reading Railroad, put it, the rights of the laboring man will be protected and cared for, not by the labor agitator, but by the Christian men to whom God has given control of the property interests in this country. For workers, things looked a little different. They understood that every extra hour on the job was an hour they didn't spend time with family, friends, pursuing self-improvement, having fun, or sleeping. They felt that the length of the workday should be a matter of negotiation, not dictatorship. To assist their efforts, <coughs> they formed unions and political parties. Uh, probably can't read all that little writing, but this was an early political cartoon which showed, uh, showed on this side the capitalist making a deal with the devil in order to give the vote to, uh, to enfranchise some people with the vote, uh, while the working stiff over here is talking to Liberty about the kinds of things that working people want. So here it's, uh, they're in favor of monarchy, aristocracy, monopolies, auctions, laws that oppress the poor, and on that side, they're opposed to all that. One of the key, oh, and, uh, let's see, did I read the sentence? Although most high school history textbooks don't mention the fact, the first unions were built by workers in the 1790s, and by the 1820s, they had founded workingmen's parties, an example of which we can see massing here. One of the key demands of these organizations was a short workday. This difference of opinion between workers and their employers often resulted in strikes, and sometimes spread beyond one workplace to an entire industry, or even an entire city. As early as 1835, working people in America organized general strikes. Not entirely unknown in United States history, general strikes are nonetheless hard to come by. A mere dozen, oops, a mere dozen citywide general strikes have occurred since the first one in Philadelphia in 1835. And national general strikes have usually appeared only within the confines of a single industry. This is in contrast to the generalized work stoppages that from time to time scare the hell out of ruling classes in other countries. In late May 1835, coal heavers on the Philadelphia docks went on strike for a 10-hour day. Here's how one historian described events. As they paraded down the streets of the city on June 3rd, cord wainers, carpenters, and other tradesmen followed with the shouts of, we are all day laborers. Who knows what a cord wainer is? The first 
first recorded strike in the United States was by cord waiters in Philadelphia in the 1790s. Shoemakers, that's what they were called at that time. Throughout the week, leaders of the recently formed General Trades Union used labor presses, posters, and parades, complete with drum and fife corps, demanding a 10-hour day to rally Philadelphia workers to join their brethren in the fight. By June 10th, over 40 trades and nearly 20,000 workers, including city employees, joined the strike. Shortly after city workers struck, the city council announced that workers employed under the authority of the city corporation would be granted a 10-hour day. By the end of June, most laborers received the concessions they asked for and membership in the GTU soared. Thanks to events like that, by 1867, the movement for an eight-hour day had taken hold of the imagination of working people. They had a slogan, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. But things didn't just move forward. Then as today, economic hard times would reverse the workers' movement victories. Just as one example, here in California, unions presented the state legislature with tens of thousands of signatures on a petition for an eight-hour day, and there were demonstrations and strikes for the goal in towns and cities across the state. In February 1868, the governor signed an eight-hour day law, just the second in the country. But after completion of the Transcontinental Railroad the next year, and the onset of a national economic depression a couple years after that, California workers lost the eight-hour day because desperate workers <coughs> flooded in from elsewhere in the country willing to work for 10 or more hours at the same pay. And by the way, does anybody recognize this mural? Recommend. Very good. That's right. In foot of um, Mission Street in the Rincon Annex building, the old Rincon Annex of the post office, uh, the building itself is now hollowed out and has condos and shops and things like that, but the lobby of the post office is still there. In that lobby, Anton Refresier put together the last of the New Deal murals. They were, weren't finished until after the war because he served overseas. And when he came back, he finished up what he started before the war. And this is, if you haven't seen these, this is a fantastic series of historical murals about California that a major artist created in the 1940s. And the sign and the other signs in this originally showed that this was a union parade for the eight-hour day, because that's what he was depicting in 18, from 1868. 1948 was when he was finishing this. This was when the Red Scare was starting to set in place. And there was a huge controversy over his murals for the labor and radical content, and for showing things in California history, like the anti-Chinese movement of the 19th century that were not things that were not so savory and that people didn't like so much if you were conservative to see in public places. Anyway, uh, also around this time occurred, now we're back in 1867, the first large if unsuccessful demonstrations and strikes on May 1st for the eight-hour day in Chicago. The governor of Illinois had signed the first statewide eight-hour day law in the country on March 1st, 1867, meant to go into effect on May 1st. It unfortunately included an important exception that it would only apply in workplaces where there is, quote, no special contract to the contrary. This loophole undermined the impact of the law. 
although 10,000 workers paraded in support of an effective law, and in many large factories the following day, workers simply walked out after eight hours, the employers prevailed over time and the law was not enforced. The push for an eight-hour workday was not arbitrary. One of the leaders of the movement, machinist Ira Stewart, said that workers were usually too modest and meek in their behavior and their desires, and the reason was that people who worked 12 or 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week, could only think of eating and sleeping. They didn't have the energy or imagination to dream of a better world, let alone demand it or act together to achieve it. Across the Atlantic, Karl Marx, a leader in the small but influential International Working Men's Association, also known as the First International, agreed. The eight-hour day, he said, was a central goal of the workers' movement and an important step in the direction of socialism. In other words, the demand for an eight-hour day was what today we would call a transitional demand. Thus was a revolutionary one. And employers, as well as workers, knew it. And the bosses did everything in their power to prevent it from happening. By the mid-1880s, a large number of workers' organizations, including a new national federation of trade unions, had passed resolutions for an eight-hour day. Some thought local unions should pressure their own employers to grant an eight-hour day workplace by workplace. Other groups envisioned the legislative approach, attempting to pass laws in city and state governments with the ultimate goal being a national law. Eventually, momentum built for a nationwide general strike that would mark, hope the organizers, the beginning of the eight-hour day. The Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, the predecessor to today's AFL-CIO, set May 1st, 1886 as the big day. It attempted to get the largest worker organization, the Knights of Labor, to join in. Although the general strike idea was popular in the ranks of the Knights, its more conservative leaders were not enthusiastic. So the Federation's local councils worked to create alliances with as many groups as possible, including local Knights Assemblies. For months in advance of that day, unions and other worker associations spread the word through meetings and demonstrations, flyers, newsletters, and other publications. The coalition effort was strong. Even before May 1st, tens of thousands of workers had been granted an eight-hour day by employers seeking to avoid a fight. A popular song was sung across the country in these meetings. And we don't know what the, uh, or at least I don't know, what the melody was to this song. The words are well recorded in the journals and newspapers of the time, and historians note it. But we don't know what the song was that accompanied the melody. So if anybody can find that, I would love to know what it is. But the words were, we mean to make things over. We're tired of toil for naught, but bare enough to live on, never an hour for thought. We want to feel the sunshine. We want to smell the flowers. We're sure that God has willed it, and we mean to have eight hours. We're summoning our forces from shipyard and shop and mill, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. On May Day, somewhere between a third to half a million workers left their workplaces around the country. In many cities, the strikes and demonstrations continued on for days. In New York, 10,000 marched in a torchlight procession and attended a meeting of 20,000 in Union Square, where the future president of the American Federation of Labor, Sam Gompers, predicted that May 1st would forever be remembered as a second declaration of independence. 
In Louisville, Kentucky, black and white members of the Knights of Labor, ignoring their national leadership, left work and marched together in a parade of 6,000. The Knights' motto was, an injury to one is the concern of all. You hear an echo of that in Union slogans today. And in a time of enormous prejudice, many of its local assemblies nonetheless tried to live up to that idea. Although parks in Louisville were off limits to African Americans, the parade ended in National Park with an integrated demonstration. A black-owned newspaper reported, thus have the Knights of Labor broke down the walls of prejudice. The city with the largest disruption to business as usual was Chicago, where around 80,000 strikers turned out, including shutting some of the largest factories. The majority of these workers were immigrants, Polish Catholics, Russian Jews, and Germans who were especially active on the political left. But they came from elsewhere in Europe as well. The McCormick Reaper Works, a giant agricultural equipment factory, had already been on strike since February, and the factory was being run by strike breakers with the assistance of hundreds of Chicago police and armed thugs hired by the company. An eight-hour demonstration was being held on May 3rd by several thousand lumbermen outside the factory when the bell signaled the end of the day for the strike breakers. As they left, the crowd confronted them. After a fight broke out between the demonstrators and the strike breakers, police fired into the melee, killing one striker instantly with more dying of their wounds soon after. One of the speakers at the rally and a witness to the police killings was August Spies, a socialist journalist and leading left-wing member of the Central Labor Council. He ran back to his office and produced a flyer in English and German calling for a demonstration the next evening at 7.30 in Haymarket Square to protest police violence. 20,000 copies were distributed all over town the next day. The hastily called meeting was in competition with several others in nearby neighborhoods and a rainstorm was gathering. But around 3,000 showed up, filling up just part of the large square. Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison left as the rain began to fall. He stopped in at the local police station and told Captain John Bonfield, who had gathered nearly 200 police and was planning to suppress the demonstration, that it was peaceful, winding down due to the rain, and he should send the police back to their precincts. Instead, Bonfield ordered his men to move in and break up the demonstration. By then, there were about an even number of demonstrators and police. As the police moved into the crowd, someone threw a bomb into their midst. One officer was killed and dozens injured. In the confusion, the police opened fire in all directions, killing demonstrators and police alike. The next day, Mayor Harrison declared martial law and soon hundreds were arrested. Some were union leaders and left-wing activists, others were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Eventually, all but eight men were released. These eight were charged with murder. The eight radical working class leaders, six of whom were German immigrants and several of whom were physically absent from Haymarket Square, were chosen not due to any evidence that connected them to the bomb. Indeed, the bomber was never found. What linked the eight was their effectiveness as organizers in the city's largely immigrant working class. Normal jury selection processes were suspended and a jury was hand-picked for its hostility to trade unionism, socialism, and anarchism. The judge ordered that all eight were to be tried together in a conspiracy trial. He forbade the defense 
to clarify any of the men's political beliefs, ordering them only to respond directly to specific points raised by the prosecution, while the prosecution spoke at great length about anarchism and violence. The state's attorney was remarkably candid regarding what this trial was about. He said, law is on trial, anarchy is on trial. These men have been selected, picked out by the grand jury, and indicted because they are the leaders. They are no more guilty than those thousands who follow them. Gentlemen of the jury, convict these men, make examples of them, hang them, and you save our institutions, our society. Seven of the eight were convicted. Four were executed, and one committed suicide or was murdered, we don't know, in his jail, jail cell. Like Illinois Governor Peter Altgeld, who pardoned the remaining three prisoners a few years later, legal scholars today believe that the trial was a farce. In the hysterical atmosphere of what became the nation's first employer-orchestrated Red Scare, the movement for the eight-hour day was not entirely halted, but its momentum was greatly slowed. Ultimately, it took more than 50 years before the eight-hour day became part of federal law with passage of the FLSA Act of 1938. So, how did May Day become an international workers' holiday from this? The last quarter of the 19th century saw the growth all over the world of a movement for socialism. The small International Workingmen's Association of Karl Marx had been disbanded in 1876, but a new international founded in Paris in 1889 represented millions of workers due to the rise of large mass political parties of the left especially in Europe, but also in the United States, Canada, and the Third World, dedicated to a transition from capitalism to socialism. That's Friedrich Engels over there. Uh, at this rally in Paris. In one of its first official acts, in response to the travesty of justice in Chicago and the fraudulent conviction of the eight leaders of the eight-hour movement, the Second Socialist International proclaimed that each May 1st, workers the world over should demonstrate and act, quote, in a manner suited to the conditions in their own country to achieve the eight-hour workday. Since that time, most countries in the world established May Day at one time or another as International Workers' Day or Labor Day. The governments of those countries mostly didn't do that out of benevolence or their own free will. It was organized movements of workers calling for it and acting in various ways to achieve it, as the Second International said, in a manner suited to the conditions in their own country that pushed the governments to proclaim May Day as a holiday. This didn't happen here in the United States due to two things. The momentum developed throughout the 1880s before the events of 1886 for a Labor Day on a different date, and the fears among labor leaders following the Haymarket convictions of being associated with the portrayal of anarchism and socialism as violent ideologies by the conservative media and politicians on behalf of the employers. Since a growing number of cities, beginning with New York and states, starting with Oregon in 1887, had proclaimed Labor Day in September as a holiday, it seemed simpler and safer to go with that. For worried union leaders, Labor Day didn't have the whiff of radicalism associated with May 1st. For government and business leaders, Labor Day in September was seen as an escape valve, letting the working class have its non-radical day off. 
But the sentiments for a May Day celebration have never gone away, either, because there's a very powerful cluster of things that emerged out of this history. The movement for the eight-hour day was tied to the idea for a work holiday on May 1st, and also to a general strike to achieve the eight-hour day. You can think about it this way. A work holiday is, in effect, a legal general strike, which is why the pushback has always been so harsh by employers and government. If we go back to the ideas of the 19th century, time off work can provide the space needed by workers to consider other ways of organizing, not only their own time as individuals outside work, but reorganizing society itself as well. That's a compelling concept, and it accounts for the attempts, even in the US, to revive the tradition. At some points, like in 1932, when 60,000 people showed up in Times Square in New York, it seemed like the holiday might reemerge. These efforts, less spectacularly but stubbornly, continue to this day, up to and including the call for general strikes in support of May Day, but also in connection with other movements of resistance with greater contemporary meaning. Let's take a moment to talk, a little detour to talk about this talk, this tactic. Of the actual citywide general strikes that have occurred, two happened in California a dozen years apart, in San Francisco, 1934, and across the Bay in Oakland, 1946. And you'll be hearing more about this in an upcoming program, as Katie and um, Robert mentioned here. Uh, the San Francisco general strike emerged out of a West Coast maritime worker strike after two participants were killed by police. The work stoppage brought virtually all industrial and commercial operations of San Francisco to a halt. After this determined display of collective power, maritime workers gained union recognition, substantial increases in wages, and control over their hiring halls. And following two more general strikes that year in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Toledo, Ohio, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act one year to the day after the San Francisco strikers, Sperry and Bordeaux, were killed, establishing a national legal mechanism for peaceful workplace conflict resolution for the first time. The Oakland general strike, not as fraught as its geographic cousin, was the last of six in 1946, and the latest the country has experienced. A less violent and less conclusive affair than San Francisco's, touched off by women clerks on strike for union recognition in downtown department stores, it nevertheless led to collective bargaining in the town's retail industry and ultimately a progressive shift in the city's power relations. The Oakland general strike, interestingly, did not call itself a general strike. Its leaders called it a work holiday. And it had a festive atmosphere, partly due to its occurrence during the December holiday season, but also because the ruling class chose not to contest the outcome with armed force in the streets. You, you probably see that over here. Skates on their street, on their feet, and things like that were going on throughout the street. It was very festive. Recent instances where political forces issued calls for a general strike, such as the massive 2006 May Day immigrant rights marches and the Occupy Oakland 2011 Day of Action that commandeered downtown streets, shuttered banks, and closed the port, 
did not result in the classic general strike scenario of everyone leaving work, but did manage to make significant statements and impact public opinion because they were attached to actually existing movements. With such demonstrable results for the tactic of a general strike, why would progressive forces within labor refrain from calling for a general strike, say, against the Trump agenda, which includes existential threats to unions like national right to work legislation moving through Congress today? One reason, following the 1946 strike wave, a conservative Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act over Harry Truman's veto. Among several damaging anti-labor provisions, it imposed limits on and penalties for mass strikes in the private sector, which can result in serious fines and jail sentences for leaders and participants. Today's union leaders are painfully aware of this difference between the mid-20th century era of militant direct action and now. Another difference between 1946 and now is the changed nature of the economy and the workforce. Fewer than 10% of U.S. workers are today employed in manufacturing, the former heart of the labor movement, and the service sector is not as deeply unionized as manufacturing once was. With a shrunken labor movement, working people have been more vulnerable to right-wing, look-over-there, divide-and-conquer demagogy, blaming immigration, taxes, and big, big government, or say, teachers for the country's woes. So this was uh, a headline from the Kentucky strike of teachers last year, in which you know, attempting to divide parents from teachers, the governor says, I'm sure that kids were abused while the teachers were out on strike. While slightly more subtle than the propaganda of the capitalist class in the 19th century, the goal remains the same keeping workers suspicious of one another and preventing the unity necessary for effective action. Finally, muscles of class power need exercise to perform properly. Over the decades, as labor's density in the workforce atrophied under relentless assault by capital, so has its capacity to support actions like general strikes. It is unlikely that Taft-Hartley prohibitions, though, would matter much if a united labor movement pulled off a successful general strike. As with labor in the 30s and 40s and the civil rights movement a couple of decades later, the sheer scale of such mass civil disobedience would seriously hamper the ability of the government and the employers to impose legal penalties. <clears throat> you can see this dynamic playing out right now in the wave of public education strikes, where their size has intimidated Republican legislatures and governors, and the effort to pass laws imposing jail time in Colorado went nowhere although it took a second statewide strike in West Virginia this year to beat back an attempt by the legislature to undo what was won last year. Another aspect of May Day history is its tie to immigration and internationalism. In the Golden State, better than one in four residents today were born in another country. And among the ones with documents, most have family members or friends who do not. They are not fond of Trump and his noxious clouds of xenophobia and racism. They are, the Californians who were born in the state generally empathize with the immigrant experience. Not long ago, most of them were immigrants too and don't suffer from the historical amnesia seemingly so prevalent elsewhere. This sensibility provides part of the basis for hope for collective resistance. 
And the Trump regime, as you know, has already generated various forms of mass direct action, including some of considerable size and scale. There's also been a diversity of tactics, including the women's marches, airport direct actions against deportation of immigrants, intensified electoral work to take back Congress and state legislatures from right-wing anti-immigrant and anti-labor politicians and replace them with sane human beings, in addition to the recent wave of mass strikes in public education, not to mention the explosive growth of DSA. I hope that this activism continues to grow root and branch, but whether we get ultimately to a general strike will depend not so much on desire as on the practical readiness of large numbers of workers who understand their own collective power and a mature organizational center to harness and channel that energy effectively. It's ironic that the events that gave birth to May Day occurred in 1886 the same year as the United States received from France the gift of the Statue of Liberty, a symbol of welcome to immigrants dedicated as a, was dedicated as a wave of xenophobia the nation, set in motion through a successful effort by anti-labor against the eight-hour day. Divide and conquer, or unite and win. If the immigrant rights community can build a solid connection with the movement happening right now in public education, we will have through a gave birth to May Day occurred in 1886, the same year as the United States received from France the gift of the Statue of Liberty, a symbol of welcome to immigrants dedicated as a, was dedicated as a wave of xenophobia and anti-immigrant scapegoating swept the nation set in motion through a successful effort by anti-labor forces to hold the line against the eight-hour day. So, which will it be? Divide and conquer, or unite and win? If the immigrant rights community can build a solid connection with the movement happening right now in public education, we will have the possibility of achieving some of the historical goals of May Day. Not necessarily a holiday, although that would be nice, But what that holiday represents, the power of a united working class acting on its own behalf. And so I say to you, in conclusion, if you don't like the labor history you've got, go out and make some of your own. So big thank you to Fred Glass for that speech. And also check out Fred's book, California Labor History. Uh, it's a really excellent book. Oh, been quite a, wow. Wow, what a show. Lots of information. Uh, thanks so much for folks for listening. Um, I'll do a brief plug here for the radio station. This is Mutiny Radio. I'm drinking some water, even though it's been a moment since I spoke. Uh, if you'd like to do a show here of your own, uh, you can do so. Check out mutinyradio.fm. We've got some open slots. Um, it's available to do a show of your own. There's shows here every day of the week, so please do check out our schedule. Lots of great programming here. If you'd like to support the station, please come in. There's lots of open mics here, as well as a GoFundMe up on the uh, mutinyradio.fm page. Also, if you would like to support the show in particular, we've got a Patreon that's up that helps pay for the monthly dues. If you go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev, that's W-E-E-K-L-Y-R-E-V, you can find the information there. Also, share some news stories if you go to facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. 
there as well. Thanks so much for listening in. Um, thanks for everyone out there making the world a better place and battling against the state violence and violence against labor. And I'm sure it's easy to see the, the themes in this show of folks. Excuse me, uh, folks, uh, folks, uh, working for labor rights. Okay. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's a big program. Okay. Thanks again for listening. I'm going to connect, uh, connect the computer here for some more music as we wrap up. Um, yeah. Coming up next on Mutiny Radio is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective with Global Val and Diamond Dave and lots of folks. If you'd like to read poetry, sing some music, call in, come in, talk about what's going on in the world, it's a great place to do that. And that's on from 3 to 6 p.m. There's some comedy here at the station tonight. Lots of good things. Okay. I'm going to wrap up here. And this is Florence Reese with the original uh, Which Side Are You On? I uh, hope everyone has a... Uh, good week. Come all you poor workers, good new to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? We're starting our good battle. We know we're sure to win because we've got the gun thugs looking very thin. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? If you go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say they have to guard us to educate their child. Their children live in luxury, our children almost wild. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Gentlemen, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a gun thug or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner. He's now in the air and sun. He'll be with you fellow workers till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Now all of you know which side you're on, and they'll never keep us down. Has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento honestly is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls, trivia on Mondays, taco Tuesdays, first Wednesday live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long. 
with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks. And welcome back to the weekly review. Didn't quite finish. Thought I'd finished and was playing the breaker. And then I thought, oh wow, I should actually mention the Mayday events that are coming up. Hello. <laughs> so I've found two so far. There's one in San Francisco that is happening at Embarcadero Plaza. That's again Wednesday, May 1st, from 4 p.m. to 6:30 p.m. There's a Facebook event invite stand up to workplace discrimination. I also heard that there was going to be one at Justin Herman Plaza, which is also in the same area. So I'd say definitely go head out to Embarcadero around 4 p.m., take the day off May 1st for May Day, celebrate International Workers Day. And then one moment I'm going to find there was one in Oakland as well that's happening at Oscar Grant Plaza. Initially, I'd heard that they were going to do the one in Oakland in the morning so folks could go to both. However, the only invite I was able to find online uh, was starting at around 3 p.m. So I'd say uh, my suggestion, recommendation, if you don't know, uh, help do some research, find out. um, And uh, especially there are probably, um, I've just been going really fast. Okay. Wherever you are, there's a May Day celebration happening. And if there isn't one near you, then create one. How does that sound? Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, going back to the breaker. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. Uh, coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val. And I uh, hope everyone has a, a great week. The more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, punk rock and schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Bender's Bar and Grill. Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Navoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at mutinyradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. 
Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips. Don't know anything about it. Sorry. All on my limited view. Yes. Every Tuesday from 12 to 2. Uh, oh, you can if you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah. And Google Play. And Stitcher. iTunes. Oh, you already said that. TuneIn Radio. Uh, Stitcher, you said that. Spotify. Oh, my God. There's just so many. And Overcast. Um, yes. You can also find us on social media. M as in Mary. L as in Larry. P as in Peter. Podcast MOV Podcast is our handle. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. That, that kind of sucked balls. Good evening, there, my friends. Here at MutinyRadio.fm, Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics, it's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Four Radio
listener, it's that time of year again. March 1st through 5th, it's time for the 4th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Over 40 comics, 25 shows, 5 days, all here at Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street. 25 shows, 5 days, amazing comics from all over the United States here in San Francisco to entertain you with 25 differently themed.